You know, Jay, the Nagari have always felt like such a weird fit for the X-Men. I know, right? Like, sure, let's take this monster that showed up in a prose story in Haunt of Horror, make it look like a Geiger ripoff, and stick a rock full of them in Charles Xavier's backyard. How did they even get in there? Oh, Thon did that. Remind me who Cthon is again? You know, Elder God, uh, used to be trapped in Mount Fundagor. Oh, was he the guy who altered Wanda Maximoff's powers to be mystically based so that she could eventually serve as his mortal host? He was, although I'm not actually sure how canon that is these days. But the Nagari work for him. The Nagari generally aren't too picky about their employers. I mean, one time a Monsignor in the Catholic Church recruited them. Do I even want to know? To try and kill Satan. What?! I'm Jay Edidon. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 422 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to our favorite promising but abortive run of X-Men from the late 90s. Well, one of two. There are two. We like them equally. Now I'm just thinking of, of an article that was, was fake Yelp rev- reviews from history, and one of them was from, Mon- from Monarchy, and um, the review was, I like this equally to rope. <laughs> Very nice. Uh, but yes, we are back to covering uh, some X-Men. In this case, we're covering Adjectiveless X-Men, which is the one of the two X-Men books that's written by Joe Kelly and penciled mostly by Carlos Pacheco. Eventually, they're actually going to subtitle a series Adjectiveless X-Men, and it's going to get so confusing. Oh, it really will, yeah, but I will giggle every time. Anyway, uh, this run features a small and ragtag team of fairly non-traditional X-Men, and I feel like maybe before we jump into it, we should go into some backstory. Do you want to say it, Miles? Oh, I do. I do. Previously on X-Men. Since Operation Zero Tolerance, that being a crossover where an anti-mutant paramilitary group attacked and captured a whole bunch of mutants in the U.S., the X-Men have been rebuilding. One thing they've been rebuilding is their home. The X-Mansion was stripped down to bare walls by Operation Zero Tolerance troops. Dick move. Another thing that they're rebuilding is their ranks. With various members having left the team or having been left behind, we're down to just a handful of veterans. Specifically... Storm, Wolverine, Beast, Iceman, Rogue, and Cannonball. Yes, Cannonball does count as a veteran. Fight us, late 90s Marvel. But there's also some new blood here. We've got Cecilia Reyes, an ER doctor with force field powers, who is very grumpy to be on a superhero team instead of still working at the hospital. Uh, Maggot, a brash young man who hangs out with two hungry metallic maggot slugs named Eni and Domini, and who has a mysterious past connection to Magneto, which we'll be exploring today. And Marrow, a former sewer-dwelling mutant Morlock and former anti-human terrorist who continually grows bone spurs out of random parts of her body. It's super gross. Well, she's not so much on the team right now. She's kind of pulling us on fire. Um, she left after a sparring session with Wolverine went very wrong, and she's currently taking care of her injured Morlock mentor Callisto back in the sewers. So, about those Morlocks, as a reminder, they're the mutants who don't look human enough to easily live in the surface world and have their own society in underground tunnels below it. Now, that society was much, much bigger until the X-Men's first crossover event, that being the Mutant Massacre. It was years ago, and most of the Morlocks were killed during that story. Also during that story, founding X-Man Angel was crucified by his wings to a wall, which led to them being amputated and him being transformed into the Horseman of Death by Apocalypse. Recently, Angel's evil metal wings burst open to reveal that his original feathered wings were still there, or at least had grown back years after their amputation. So, he's happy about that. Everything is going great physically, but psychologically, a little less so. And that brings us to X-Men number 74, Rituals. This issue is written by Joe Kelly, penciled by Carlos Pacheco, inked by Art T. Bear, colored by Christian Lichner and Aaron Lucen, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft and Emerson Miranda. 
So we were just talking about Marrow, right? She was an X-Man for like two issues after Operation Zero Tolerance before everything went to hell and she went back underground. Was she really an X-Man? I feel like if you'd asked her, she would have told you she was just hanging out with the X-Men for a while. I mean, maybe. Like, I know Maggot just sort of declared himself an X-Man, and the X-Men declared Cecilia Reyes an X-Man. Uh, yeah, I think you're right. I think Mero was just kind of there and maybe assumed to be an X-Man by, you know, passersby. Us. I mean, I think one of the ongoing problems with the X-Men as a team is that they assume that anyone they think would make a good X-Man would, would also want to be one. Right, yeah. And, like, it's ambiguous, because it's not like the Avengers, who literally have membership cards, or the Fantastic Four, who, even though their lineup changes, uh, A, it's always four people, and B, they have individual seats in the Fantasticar, which is a great name for a vehicle, uh, with the X-Men, like, you know, if you're around enough, maybe you're an X-Man, maybe you're not. I like the idea that this becomes a running issue with the mansion's maintenance staff. Like, is the groundskeeper an X-Man? Oh, that's a good point. That's a good point. I mean, Toad was the groundskeeper uh, for a while. Was was he an X-Man? He probably wanted to be at the time. He had a complicated relationship to the X-Men at the time. He did. He was also dating Husk, who was having a rough time. I guess that was a little later. Anyway, point being, it's ambiguous. It's very confusing. Um... Does the mailman count as an X-Man? I mean, if, if they come by, like, frequently enough? Maybe a guest star? Maybe a guest star, yeah. Okay, they're, like, credited separately at the end of the credits. Uh, anyway, Marrow's not one right now. That much is very clear. She's back in the Morlock tunnels slash sewers underground with her mentor and friend, Callisto, former leader of the Morlocks. Callisto got really injured in Operation Zero Tolerance, and she has been very gradually recovering ever since. But I guess things are improving, because her treatment has advanced from its previous method, which was fall leaves gently scattered over her bare breasts, to actual bandages, and her recovery surface has advanced from a sewer floor to a four-poster bed covered and surrounded by giant, drippy candles? Wait, the bed's covered with candles? There are candles, like, on the on the headboard and the footboard, just kind of stuck to them. It really does not seem safe. Okay, but not, like, in the middle of the bed or anything. Uh, no. Although it wouldn't surprise me if Marrow just sort of kept piling candles on Callisto, and Callisto kept sort of subtly moving them back to the ground. Do you get the feeling that a lot of the things Marrow does are kind of come from someone who grew up playing make-believe but never quite understood that it wasn't real? Well, actually, let's get to that, because Marrow is praying as she tries to treat Callisto. With light that was denied us, I heal you, by the stone heart of Earth, to he who was crucified and reborn. But she ain't talking about Jesus, because she passes a homemade doll of Warren Kenneth Worthington III, Angel, to Callisto to hold onto as a sort of talisman. Because, you know... Angel, he certainly was crucified, and he was kind of reborn, first as the Horseman of Death slash Archangel, and then as Angel again. Marrow has this fixation with Angel, and it kind of makes sense, because she survived the Mutant Massacre, a horrific, horrific event, and he was this vision of beauty down inside it, where even if he was super injured, he was still trying to help. He was this vision of light, and she sort of fixated on him, and then kept thinking about him when she was in another dimension growing up for a while. Long story. And so now that she's here, now that she's around the X-Men, she's sort of giddy thinking about him every time, even as he's still this, like, mythical figure to her. And even though he's kind of an asshole. I mean, Marrow's way more of an asshole, so I don't think that part bothers her. Yeah, that's fair. Callisto, despite the doll and the extreme number of candles, is pretty convinced that she's done for, and she really wants Marrow to go back to the X-Men to find a home there. That's what Callisto's been trying to convince Marrow of this whole time. You know what it is? It's because they're not doing Morlock healing right. They haven't dressed her in bondage gear. Yes, as we learned back in the day when Xavier almost died and the Morlock sewer wizard healer healed Xavier, uh, you need to dress somebody in bondage gear to fully treat them. That's just, like, part of it. Otherwise, insurance doesn't cover it. Yeah. 
Anyway, Warren of Nazareth here, Angel, is soaring through the winter skies of New York City, just glorying in having his real wings back and feeling himself for the first time in years. I mean, it makes sense. Like, they were a part of his body. Flying was his biggest joy. And he points out here that his metal wings, like, didn't have nerves and stuff. He is wearing a shirt in this scene, though, which kind of confused me because I feel like if he's trying to get back to peak pre-Archangel Warren, he should be topless. Oh, yeah, no, his default state is is shirtlessness. Much like Dalton from Roadhouse. Oh, Dalton. Well, like Dalton heading to the double deuce, Warren has a task in mind. He's heading down to the Morlock Tunnels. To become the greatest cooler of all time. I mean, except his uh, mentor figure, Sam Elliott, I assume. Probably, yeah. So Warren's got his body fully back. I mean, okay, he's still blue, but the feathery wings are the important part to him. But he wants to conquer his fear. He's still got a lot of trauma related to what happened down there, understandably. Alas, despite Warren convincing himself that, or trying to convince himself that he has nothing to fear in the tunnels, he is dead wrong. Apparently the abomination has taken up residence down there. The Abomination, right. You might remember him from the She-Hulk TV show recently. He's a big, monstrous, scaly, green Hulk villain. Uh, Long story, most relevantly at this point, he had a three-issue miniseries about a community of monster people that he was leading in the sewers that came out a year or two before this. Uh, We've talked about Roust, that Dickensian street urchin that we briefly saw in the Operation Zero Tolerance chapter of X-Men. Roust was a member of that group. Threnody was a member of that group for a while. Neither of those are particularly monstrous. Yeah, everybody else was. I mean, Rouse is pretty unusual in that Dickensian street urchins don't exactly blend into your standard New York crowd. Yeah, but you can, like, get them different pants. No, 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 street urchins have to wear that. They, they start, their skin starts to sizzle and they scream if you try to dress them in anything else. As Threnody would, I assume, if she wasn't wearing that orange scale male bodice shirt thing. Her outfit was weird. The 90s were an interesting time. I did go to an X-Men queer dance night and drag show where someone did drag as Threnody, and it was the most amazing thing in the world. I can't believe someone actually did a full Threnody outfit. It looked awesome. That is incredibly impressive. Right, it's so niche. I love it. The Abomination is not impressed. He mockingly refers to Angel as Gabriel, you know, like the Angel Gabriel, and is being super aggressive and scary toward him. Man, not all angels know each other. Yeah, that's racist abomination. And Angel is legitimately terrified. Appropriately so. I have no words. They're on the surface with my beautiful sky, my heart, my courage. Need room to think, to fly. Suddenly, I'm all turned around, lost, chest tight. And now... He misses the metal wings with which he could have just rocketed through the tunnels. Or fought back effectively, yeah. Marrow, though, as luck would have it, is nearby and sees all of this, and she is so excited. It's him! It's him! Here! He's perfect! My angel! He's too good to be down here. Not like us. Not like the monsters. We talked a few episodes ago about how we had really hoped for more of this dynamic now that Marrow was around the X-Men more, and we're getting that. Like, this book is leaning in, and I am fascinated by this. Honestly, what I was hoping more was that she'd be forced to reckon with him as a real person. I feel like that's probably coming. I don't know. I mean, that's the thing. These runs don't last very long, so I don't know where Kelly and Siegel would have gone with it. Yeah, we'll see. And she doesn't want him to see her, but... He's clearly in trouble, and she's the only person around who can help. And he is horrified that he's so messed up in reacting to this that a kid is sacrificing herself to save him. So he comes in all heroic-like and confronts Abomination, looking pretty impressive. Like, Pacheco does a good job of drawing Angel as this sort of pitiful, feeble-looking figure when he's being scared, and as this, well, angelic, heroic, impressive figure when he's not. But Abomination's like, dude, no way. She is a monster too, and she seems to agree she doesn't want Warren to look at her. But he disagrees with that. He says, no, she's beautiful and courageous, and you can just see her perk up at this. Again, Pacheco is really good at capturing those subtleties from panel to panel. Unfortunately, it does not help him in the fight with Abomination, who effectively kicks Angel's ass. 
Yeah, I mean, we've talked about how Angel, even without his metal razor-sharp wings and flechettes, is still pretty tough. His wings are very strong. But Abomination is like a giant scaly monster guy who can go toe-to-toe with the Hulk. It is not an even fight. He is a very large man. He's so large. He's an entire nation of a bomb. Nothing, huh? All right, well, anyway, Marrow is inspired and kicks the Abomination's ass. But it takes her deciding to give Angel's Way a try to drive the Abomination off. He just realizes, oh, I guess she's not what he thought she was. So that's the end of that fight. And Angel realizes after Marrow has left that the weapons she was using to fight the Abomination, with which she eventually drove him off, were Warren's discarded flechettes from his metal wings. This part is confusing, because A, why didn't she just use her bones? I mean, I guess maybe they became sort of a talisman to her, the flechettes that connected her to Angel, because she had them. But also, where would she have gotten those? Angel hasn't really been in the Morlock tunnels all that much. I guess he fought Sabretooth down here one time? He shed those fucking things everywhere. Oh god, it's like me, just long gray hairs everywhere in the house. Every time I vacuum, I have to cut them off the vacuum roller with the scissors. Except, uh, I guess flechettes would tear the vacuum up, like, a lot more. I mean, it depends on the vacuum. I guess if it was a vacuum created by APOCALYPSE to, you know, withstand uh, the various rigors of the flechette-covered floor, like, only the strongest vacuums survive. Precisely. I'm imagining, like, an adamantium or vibranium vacuum. Mm, yep, or an adamantium-vibranium alloy. And Angel sees that carved into the wall is light never dies even in monsters. I guess this is just a marrow thing, because, like, as soon as she moved into the X-Mansion a few issues ago, she carved this way to a dark ride on her door, which, yeah, I'm pretty sure that's what it sounds like. I, uh, I have a little bit of sympathy, though, so I was an angsty teenager, as were many of us, and... For reasons I cannot fully explain, lo these many decades later, I carved into my wall, I yet live, at one point, when I was like, I don't know, 14 or something. Um, And then I covered it with a poster, because I think I realized that that was sillier than it was angsty. But years later, a friend of mine rented my room from my parents, and as he was taking the posters down to like put aside to put his own stuff up, he saw that carved into the wall and was briefly very terrified. Wow. Wow, buddy. Ugh, teenagers. Well, back at the X-Mansion, Beast and Cecilia Reyes are kind of acting like teenagers. They're bickering at each other, both diagnostically and flirtatiously. I do love their dynamic. Like, it's so antagonistic, but there's also clearly that attraction between them. Oh, this is the dynamic we're gonna see Beast have, and which we've seen him have with pretty much every woman he's been involved with. It's true, it's true. That's just sort of his jam. That's what he looks for. Maggot, meanwhile, is uh, not content to be a third wheel, so he is taking as much spotlight as he can in this hangout. He's holding up a boulder in one hand and holding out his slugs on his other arm. He's pretending to be, as he puts it, Cape Town Adonis in winter with shot put and companions. His playful, like, kind of brash confidence, it really works. It's fun, and it's going to be especially effective contrasted to what we're soon going to learn about his past. And speaking of that... Eeny and Meeny, his slugs, they're not listening to his instructions again. They're wandering off on their own again. And that freaks him out, especially when later on he finds them covered in blood. Now, by total lack of coincidence, Wolverine is, at this point, investigating the recent murders in Salem Center, where the victims were all found with apparent bite marks. And it's strongly implied that this is what Eeny and Meeny have been doing when they left, that they've just been killing their way through Salem Center. And this subplot has been going on in the background for a while, ever since X-Men number 71. So, Logan, I love this, he is investigating with a fake police ID as Detective Jim Logan. It kind of reminds me of the Doctor from Doctor Who with their psychic paper. Except that the whole point of the psychic paper is that it's not one single ID, it's whatever the person expects to see. I mean, maybe that's what Logan has. Or maybe it's just like a giant stack of different IDs and somehow, sometimes he holds up the wrong one and so he'll like show up to uh, check out an autopsy, but he accidentally holds out his bikini inspector ID card. I was thinking poodle groomer license. (laughs) I love this. He'd be good at it. He'd use his claws. Oh, it'd be like Edward Scissorhands. Very, very gentle. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
so he's pretty sure he knows what's going on, and he goes off to find Maggot, Eenie, and Meanie, and then wakes up covered in blood with his torso torn open, starting to heal back together, and a terrified Maggot kneeling next to him. Hmm. Suspicious? Or possibly we've been getting the same red herring plotline two arcs in a row. Possibly that. But first, let's hang out back with Callisto uh, in her surprisingly flammable bed. Is it surprisingly flammable? I think it's surprisingly non-flammable, given that it has yet to catch fire despite the large number of candles. I guess that's true, but not inflammable, because inflammable means flammable, as we learned from Dr. Nick in The Simpsons one time. Fire retardant? Maybe. Well, anyway, she sees Colossus of all people coming in to take care of her giving her an injection that's supposed to help. Now remember, Callisto and Colossus were actually in an intense romantic relationship back in the 80s when she was made pretty by Mask for a while and he lost his memory from the Siege Perilous. Everybody forgets that. But the words are definitely not Colossus's words as he gives her this shot. If it lifts up your skirt, sweetie, you can call me Barishnikov. Now hold still, Mr. Happy Needle wants to give you a kiss. So this is one of the many plot threads that won't end up fully going anywhere, but that's definitely supposed to be Dark Beast, right? Yeah, yeah, I I assume so. Yeah, I mean, he's got an interest in the Morlocks, he's sort of on the loose doing evil things ever since his brotherhood was taken out back in X-Factor. Those are definitely his speech patterns. Oh yeah. And that brings us to X-Men number 75, the double-sized Anatomy of a Monster. This is written by Joe Kelly, penciled by German Garcia, inked by Art Taber, Dan Panosian, Scott Hanna, and Dan Holdridge, colored by Digital Chameleon, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft and Albert Deschain. So we're going to get a couple of fill-in artists going forward. Uh, G- German Garcia here, I really like his work. I like his marrow. She looks more human, and normally we don't dig that. Normally we like her as monstery as possible. But the way Garcia draws her bone spurs just sort of like stabbed into her flesh and kind of growing these weird scabs where they connect, it really emphasizes just how monstrous her powers themselves are, as is the fact that she's covered in blood for like half the issue. Now, speaking of people covered in blood, Wolverine wakes up with apparent autopsy scars, still healing, and rushes off in search of Maggot. He tells his concerned team teammates that there's no time for him to explain, suffice to say, Maggot's not the killer. Okay, Logan, I, we could explain in, like, one sentence. I mean, I guess we're podcasters and you're not, but come on, you're like 200 years old. I'm sure you've learned how to summarize. Maybe that makes it harder. Oh, yeah, maybe, maybe. He's got 200 years of context. He's like, listen, we used to wear onions on our belts because of the war— Oh my god, Wolverine as Grandpa Simpson is this is the whole other like layer of of weirdly appropriate interpretation. Yeah, yeah, I want to see Larry Hama write that version. Yeah, okay. Now, Maggot, meanwhile, for his part, is confronting Eni and Meanie, and then he goes off to turn himself into the police, but before he can do, do so, or rather while he's doing so, he gets yoinked away by Rogue and Storm mid-confession. Yeah, they're acting like the mutant equivalent of that long, hooked rod you pull people off the stage with when they're performing badly. No, he's still desperate to turn himself in. He's convinced that he's he's the killer, or at least that his slugs are the killers. And he um, ends up flinging himself off a building after the slugs, who avoid splattering by gnawing very quickly through the asphalt, which is really impressive. That's actually really cool. I love the way Eni and Meanie work in that regard. Like, we've seen that once before, just the idea that they're that good at just devouring. Now, somehow, when they land, the group lands not in the streets of New York, but in Ukraine. We'll kind of find out why. Kind of. Uh, And what they find there are a bunch of guys hanging from hooks in a room who have all been killed and autopsied the same way they found Wolverine. And... Nearby is a very familiar cairn. We're going to get to the cairns and their meanings shortly. Some of you may remember these from much, much, much earlier in X-Men. At this point, though, Storm and Rogue fly in in search of Maggot, fly into the cairn or what the cairn connects to. So we know Maggot isn't the killer, and if he's not, who is? Well, the first theory is that it's the Nagari, those fabled cairn dwellers who we love so much. 
Right. Uh, these are interdimensional demons whose world opens to ours via an ancient cairn in Charles Xavier's backyard. Because why the hell not? Yeah, I don't think that's ever really explained with much great detail. Like, why is there a big demon stone thing that's also a portal in Chuck's backyard? I mean, I don't know, because it's the Marvel Universe. These things happen. What do you want? Forget it, Jake. It's Westchester. <laughs> right. So yeah, that first showed up back in Uncanny X-Men number 96, before it was even called Uncanny X-Men. Also the first appearance of the angry Claremontian narrator. Twas, twas. And at that point, Cyclops was very mad at losing his teammate Thunderbird in a battle with Count Nefaria, and was angrily blasting his optic blasts everywhere, and that's where he blasted the randomly placed cairn and let a demon out. Later on in Uncanny X-Men number 143, Anagari got out on Christmas Eve and Kitty had to fight it in the X-Mansion all alone in a story very reminiscent of Alien. And later, later on, Wolverine and Nightcrawler went to the Nagari dimension through this cairn in Wolverine Annual 1995, where Wolverine slaughtered a bunch of Nagari, including their leader, Kirok, until Nightcrawler told him that, you know, maybe he should come back to the world and hang out with his friends instead of just dying in battle. But you've got forgotten one of my very, very favorite Nagari appearances, which is X-Men Unlimited number 9, in which... Excellent Wolverine villain Bloodscream became a ghost pirate captain and stopped the demon Lord Belasco from bringing the Nagari to Earth. Oh, yes, yes. Very good point. While that isn't directly plot relevant, that is always worth mentioning. It's not plot relevant, but it's awesome. Right? So Wolverine ran off to check the Cairn on the Xavier School grounds, and it in fact has grown back. He's followed closely by Beast and Cecilia, the latter in an old wasp costume that Hank stole from the Avengers Mansion. For... reasons? Okay, let's talk about this. So, the Avengers are back after dying in Onslaught. Heroes Reborn has happened. The Avengers and the Fantastic Four are in Earth 616 again. And uh, Beast did, in fact, visit the Avengers Mansion, his old friends, his old teammates, in the first few issues of that book. But why did he just take one of Wasp's outfits? I mean, I know she's got a lot, but but still. So I've got a theory. Okay. Okay. So basically, canonically, Hank was stoned the entire time he was an Avenger. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Back in the seventies, hanging out with Wonder Man. Uh, there was so much wacky tobacco. Yeah, like they were they were they were just high watching Gumby the entire time, and so my theory is that at some point he he thought it would be a grand idea or very important or something to take one of Wasp's costumes during this time period. It just got mixed in with his stuff, and when he came back to visit, he ended up, you know, picking up a couple boxes that he'd left there, which turned out to include a costume of Wasp's that he had no recollection of, of taking or having, but figured must be his now. You know, I, I'm gonna call that canon. That absolutely works on every level. I mean, have you ever, like, had that experience? I, not not that specific experience um, with the Avengers, but, like, finding something in your stuff and just being like, what, what is, I, I don't, I know what this is, but I don't know why it's here? Yeah, where you just have to assume that it must have seemed like a good idea at the time, but you've completely lost the logic you were using. Or that there was some context to it ending up with you, or maybe someone left it there, but you don't remember who or when or why. See, this just makes me really wish for those explanatory captions that we get in comics. So you're just sitting there confused, and then you look at the little asterisk in the corner of your shoebox, and it says, see the now classic January 3rd, 1992. Oh god, if we had those in real life, it would be both extremely useful and incredibly irritating. Oh god, it would. And also, I mean, as mentioned previously, I was an angsty kind of terrible teenager, as were many of us, but including me, and, like, I don't necessarily want to remember every detail of that. Yeah, there are there are things better left uh, unrevisited. It's true, it's true. We don't need Jay and Miles the Hidden Years. I would argue that we also don't really need X-Men the Hidden Years. I mean, there's some fun stuff, come on. Uh... Well, anyway, I have a second question about this, which is, why the hell is Cecilia wearing this? I mean, I guess she's going into battle, but really? That's the best thing anyone could find? Like, a green, slightly skimpy wasp outfit with really tall boots? Look, they've been there for, what, like a week? Two weeks? They're just now starting to restore 
any of the stuff that got stolen. I assume Beast just handed it to her and was like, here, put this on, hurry. And by the time she figured out what she was wearing, they were already halfway out the door. Fair. And I mean, I guess it's better than a lab coat. Less likely to get caught on things. I guess. I mean, it's not a terrible costume. It's it's a terrible costume for Cecilia. Which, I gotta say, is consistently hilarious. She's so annoyed the entire time. As she should be. Now, what comes out of the cairn once they're all there is not Nagarai. This is something new. These are quadrupedal creatures. They're all black, but painted in bright blues and purples um, with what look like some kind of ritualistic pattern and wearing golden gems. They look kind of like horses if horses had long eel heads and no eyes and also had hands instead of hooves. They're extremely cool and they are also extremely creepy. They are such great designs. Like, I don't know if our fill-in artist, German Garcia, was the one who designed them, but, like, whoever did, freaking props. I I really like the mix of sort of savagery and society, because, like, they're so monstrous-looking. They're demons. They don't even have eyes. But also, they're very fancily ornamented. Like, this is actual straight-up jewelry they're wearing, really elaborate jewelry. And like you said, those tattoos, they look extremely ritualistic, and they're very detailed. And that mix of it just makes them so alien and scary, and I love it. So Cecilia runs, and Wolverine and Beast stay and fight. And going back to Cecilia, I really like how reasonable her responses are to the costume and to the monsters. Like, she's very much the straight man of this outfit, who points out just how weird the shit they've gotten used to is. Yeah, like, before we're used to having audience surrogates like Kitty Pride or Jubilee, who were like, oh, this is scary, but also so cool to come into this world. And Cecilia, as a more grown-up version of that perspective, is like, what is this fucking bullshit? I hate it. Cecilia is a reasonable individual. She is. Oh, man. Now, luckily for Cecilia, uh, Marrow is lurking in the trees and is able to take down the monsters who are about to run Cecilia down. Yeah, but Mara's still shitty about it. Like, she scares Cecilia by pulling the hair of a demon that she killed to open its mouth and make it roar at Cecilia, and then just taunts her. Boo! Did I get you? Good. Teach you to run looking ahead, not at your unsteady upworld feet. I love how much they hate each other. Yeah, Mero and Cecilia really dislike everyone. Well, as for our other newcomer, Maggot comes to in what seems to be the Nagarai demon dimension, only to find Wolverine, but not Wolverine as we know him. Right, this Wolverine is still scarred up with the autopsy scars, but he's got long hair, face paint, and the same kind of regalia as the weird creatures we saw fighting him and Beast above ground. Like, a cross between that and those puka shell necklaces that surfers wear? Like, he's got this rope necklace thing with, like, little shells on it and beads and a little X-Men logo. And it's not just a little face paint. Like, the top half of his face is fully painted, mostly red. Now, we're never going to find out the whole backstory here. When pressed, Wolverine just says, Long story. Time doesn't exactly work the same down here. Rather not talk about it right now. Now, it's implied that, later on, that this is the stuff that Wolverine was doing back in the Wolverine Annual from 1995, where he went to the Nagara Dimension and killed a bunch of people. Well, right, but like in that annual, he was there for maybe a couple hours, and I know time flows differently here, but even if he's been here a really long time fighting demons from an alien dimension, like, why is he wearing the face paint? Who's he trying to impress? Where did he even get it? Why is he bothering? Like, I'm not gonna lie, it does look rad, but Logan, why? Why not, man? When you're in a demon dimension, you know, you, you gotta do what you gotta do. And I guess to be fair, his visits to this dimension have been typified by him sort of giving in to the beast within. Perhaps he is giving in both in terms of violence and sartorial expression. So you're saying he's trying to look like Hank McCoy? Wait, what? Yeah, the beast within. Oh, oh, I see. The fashion beast. No, no, that was back in early (laughs) X-Factor. So it was. Uh, anyway, uh, that's Wolverine and Maggot. As for Marrow, Beast, and Cecilia, they wake up in, like, a fancy science chamber? Yeah, they are are tied to poles by some form of of webbing, and they're in this this room full of, of... demonic technology. It's a great mix of the arcane and the science fictional. 
Yeah, it's like uh, all these machines that are kind of bulbous and irregularly shaped. Uh, actually, kind of like the demons. Like, it's all dark surfaces and glowing highlights. It looks cool, but also consistent. Now, Cecilia is the first to be dissected, or at least she's supposed to be the first to be dissected. But she manages to keep her force fields up for long enough to call the thing attacking her Nagari, at which point it becomes deeply offended and decides it's time to explain what's going on. See, this is not a Nagari. This is a demon named Pilgrim, who's a Rutai. The Rutai were formerly enslaved by the Nagari, and then the Rutai rebelled with the help of Myketh the Undying One. And they overthrew the Nagari and branched out to explore the human world, which they're doing by dissecting people who apparently they're pretty sure aren't individuals because they all look the same inside. That's got really interesting implications for Rutai biology. Well, we also learned that the Rutai don't really have names for the most part either. Pilgrim only has one because he's been chosen to lead this expedition. And that's kind of strange because the Rutai visually, in terms of their ornamentation, their tattoos, they do all look really different. Well, maybe that's like to distinguish them so you can... You can you can say so you don't have to be like, yo, you, no, you t- like three from the left, go do this. Okay, it's like parents who are identical twins and uh, make sure they dress them in different colors. Now, Pilgrim looks different from the Rutai we've seen before. There are apparently his attendants, and he is gray. He's got more arms, and he's got a whole whole bunch of eyes. One of which is not his at all. It is an amulet called the Eye of Kirok which is, as far as we know, the actual eye of the former leader of the Ngarai, and it um, is the source of nondescript powerful blasts, one of which he uses to take down the X-Men when they come to attack him. What's also interesting is something else that Pilgrim is, well, not wearing exactly. That's right, Eni and Meanie maggots, maggots are perched on his shoulders, and in fact, he actually looks a little bit like them, which is really interesting. And I don't know if this ends up going anywhere. I genuinely don't know. I don't think it does. Like, it's been alluded that Maggot's got this darkness to him. And part of that may be that he's kind of gross, but maybe part of it is that his his Maggots that are part of his mutant power are, like, connected to a demon dimension for some reason. I don't know. That was back before Kelly and Siegel took over, so we just really don't know what Lobdell had in mind there. Now... Pilgrim is generally uninterested in human opinions and the idea of human individuality until Wolverine shows up, and at that point, Pilgrim becomes extremely obsequious, because as it turns out, Wolverine is in fact Myketh the Undying One. Right, the sort of legendary warrior that defeated the Nagari and helped the Rutai escape this dimension and take ascendancy. Uh, yeah, that was that one time that Wolverine went in his annual into the dimension and, and killed a lot of demons. And Wolverine, for his part, is shocked and horrified to know that his berserker rage inspired this whole vivisection rampage. When I came here, I was in a bad way. My control over the beast within me was waning. And I was all too happy to let go. I hacked and slashed my way into the belly of the beast, doing what I do best. And now I see what came of it. So many dead. Because I let myself be more monster than man. And he has an existential crisis that mostly keeps him out of the subsequent fight, while Maggot tries to talk some sense into him. And this is interesting, like, Maggot's been seeing himself as a monster, but he's really not. He's been seeing Logan as the one who's always in control, this positive example. But yeah, it was Logan's lack of control that apparently inspired all of this horrible stuff. So, yeah, there's a big fight with everybody else. Uh, I appreciate that Cannonball and Rogue team up at one point, and their name for the you hit him high, I hit him low is the Mason Dixon. Oh my... Maggot and Marrow improvise a fastball special, at the end of which Marrow uses a bone to sever the chain of the eye. And then, while Logan keeps Pilgrim busy, Cecilia makes a run for the eye, trips, and ends up breaking it with the supreme power of her butt. Yeah, yeah, she just slips and then sits on the eye, which destroys all of Pilgrim's power. It is delightful. So we've talked about this with Captain Britain in particular, and I think it works here. The more serious a character is, the more fun it is when goofy, embarrassing stuff happens to them. 
They, they emerged from the former site of a cairn in Las Vegas, somewhat worse for the wear, along with all of the Rutai's former prisoners, one of whom appears to be possessed by Pilgrim. Years later, Pilgrim will in fact resurface uh, as a member of the Kin Crimson of the Shi'ar, and a bit before that, he'll be a big part of this big Belasco-Nagari event called Black Sun. We'll eventually get there. But first, we're going to get to X-Men number 76, A Boyke and His Dingas. Written by Joe Kelly, penciled by Matt Broom, inked by Sean Parsons and Aaron Soud, colored by Liquid, lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft, and Emerson Miranda. That title, by the way, is in uh, Afrikaans. It roughly translates to a boy and his things. You know, like a boy and his dog, but things. things. Yeah. So we pick up shortly after that great big fight, and Cecilia Reyes is examining everybody to make sure they're okay. Right now she's examining Marrow, and we have another fill-in penciler at this point, Matt Broom, and he draws her bone spurs as so rad-looking, like they're these irregular, rocky outcroppings almost, but they're also super tightly ridged and jagged. They are not the kind of thing you'd want to come out of you. It's really leaning into the body horror here. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, this issue is really all about body horror. Oh, yeah. And Marrow, of course, starts bickering with everybody, especially Cecilia, and starts to leave while still shirtless, at which point Cannonball flies up to check in on everybody and then suddenly covers his eyes, seeing what he's seeing. Two sisters in the house my whole life, and I still forget to knock first. Actually, Sam, you have five to six sisters, but to be fair, it is hard to keep track. They have beast counters. Come now, Samuel. We're all adults here. I'm sure this is nothing you haven't seen before. On second thought, I rescind that presupposition. Mara, meanwhile, is uh, loud and proud right in front of him. Go on, open them, corncob. Open your eyes. Alright, listen, comic, especially Beast, Sam has dated Lila Shaney and Boom Boom. You keep making him a kid? He's not! Ugh, anyway. I would argue that it is actually still entirely in character for him to be over-concerned with preserving other people's modesty. Oh, 100%, yeah. Just, you know, Beast assuming that he's never seen women before? I don't know. No, I don't Beast know. assumes that he has, just not anyone with Marrow's specific physiology. Okay, maybe that's what he's referring to. You know what? That yeah. works a whole lot better. Okay. That's what I assumed. Hank McCoy, I'm less mad at you because now you're not reinforcing one of my least favorite tropes of the 90s. You're just being no. funny instead. Yeah, no, I assumed it was specifically a, a, you know, you've seen it all before, but it's possible that you have not in fact seen this. Marrow is pretty weird looking. That's true. Anyway, Maggot is hiding in Storm's attic to avoid being examined. He doesn't want anybody to take too close a look at him. But Wolverine finds him, and for a guy obsessed so much with his own privacy, is clearly not obsessed with Maggot's, saying, From the look on your face and the weight in your voice, it sounds like a tale you'd better get off your chest. You gotta trust someone in this joint sometime, because in this business, secrets in the field get people dead. Now, you don't gotta start with me, but I'm here, and it just so happens my calendar is open. Wolverine and Batman, two loners with like a million goddamn sidekicks each. But very, very different power dynamics with the people they mentor. As uh, you just discussed with Chris in the Queering Wolverine episode. Indeed. So, Maggot does open up. He tells his origin story. He tells the story of his childhood in northwest Transvaal in South Africa. He was part of a family of seven, an hour's drive outside of apartheid aggression. And we should take a minute, because it's very relevant here and important in general, perhaps to explain what apartheid is for people who are not familiar. That is, yeah, apartheid in South Africa, there was very, very strictly enforced both segregation and class distinction between racial groups. Yeah, yeah, the white population, uh, though a numerical minority, wielded most of the power and was really, really terrible to the black population. Which is especially fucked up if you consider that that's, you know, these are respectively the colonists and the colonized people in the region. Very much so. Very not okay. 
But as far as Maggot's family, parents aside, there were two of his siblings who are mentioned. There was Lot, the oldest, who wanted to be a photojournalist, and Daniel, who was the youngest. It's true, Bob. When that boy smiled, the sun itself had to turn away from the gleam. He never met a sweeter child, or one with such rock taste, because for some reason Daniel idolized me. And as for the me in question, as for Maggot, his name is Japheth. And he wasn't well as a child. He was tiny even at 12 years old because he couldn't really eat. He just couldn't keep food down. Doctors figured it was probably stomach cancer. So he had to eat this expensive, specially formulated gruel, which meant that his family was kind of in deep poverty and everybody else was starving. And eventually, he one night overheard his mom praying for God to just just go ahead and take him soon so the rest of the family could live. And he decided, well, that's it. And he stole the car and left for the desert, as he puts it. Far enough away to bake to death without hearing my mother cry. And he continues in his story to Logan. Unfortunately, that wasn't the last time I set out to kill myself. It also wasn't the last time I'd royally bugger the job either. See, Daniel, the super innocent younger brother, had been napping unseen in the back of the car and was now stuck with Japheth out in the desert, and it quickly became clear they were going to die of exposure. But before they did, uh, you know, Magneto showed up. And I love this narration. Daniel would recall that he looked like an angel, a seriously ticked-off angel, who had donned the devil's robes. But Magneto wasn't there to kill the kids like it initially seemed. He just shushed Japheth and magnetically stopped his pain hmm. and, and helped pull out the source of that pain. Two giant metal bugs that had taken up residence in his abdomen, which then instantly healed. And the art here works so well. Again, the body horror elements, like each of the slugs are bigger than this tiny emaciated kid's torso. And the look on his face is just this one of a like one part wonder to nine parts horror. Now, overnight, the slugs then proceeded to skeletonize an antelope. And when Japheth woke up, he was stronger and his skin was blue. Although it's not consistently colored that way in the rest of the flashback. Well, it's kind of weird the way Maggot's powers work, as I understand it. He's only blue and beefy sometimes. Only when his slugs, when Eni and Meanie have just eaten a lot, or possibly when they've eaten a lot recently enough and then he draws forth power from them. It's kind of unclear to me like how voluntary that is for him to go into his blue strong form, but it's definitely not a permanent transformation. Okay, I see. Maggot continues his story. But I rolled with it. What choice did I have? Best I could, I accepted those wriggling, slimy things. Hence the beginning of a love-hate affair to rival Romeo and those Capulet twins. Right, girls? This is a trope I don't get sick of. We've seen it with Puck, we've seen it with Strong Guy. The idea that you'll have these characters that are just in some constant form of pain, and they cover it up with humor. And that humor isn't fully a mask, it's, they've internalized it so much that it becomes a central part of their personality. And that's Maggot, that's one of the things that works about him. He's got this tragic past, this horrible, horrible, painful power... And yet, he's still always talking all grandiosely and flirting with Storm and making jokes... Now, Magneto, back in the flashback, tells young Japheth about um, mutants and humans and the ideas of mutant supremacy, which do not sit well with Japheth, since they sound pretty much like apartheid. Right. And speaking of apartheid, when Magneto takes the two boys back to their family home, that home is on fire, and Lot, the eldest brother, is dead. Apparently, some troops from the dominant political class came here to preemptively squash any brewing rebellion and to kill anyone who might resist. And in their eyes, somebody trying to take pictures was resistance. So Magneto takes Japheth into town to rescue his dad who'd gone for revenge and gets, basically does the devil, you know, you have to say it, you want me to rescue him no matter what it takes? Really? No matter what? And, and responds... As you wish, young mutant. Welcome to the struggle. And then he murders a whole, whole, whole lot of people. 
And Japheth is horrified. But Magneto says, look, you're a kid, you're naive, someday you'll understand, and when you do, find me and join me. And amid that chaos was when the extreme downside to the slugs became clear, they burrowed back in. That's how it works. The slugs come out, they eat, and then they go back in, and that's how Maggot gets the calories, nutrients, whatever, and it's painful every time. That's why he always runs away to the bathroom whenever anybody is having meals. He doesn't want to be seen. It's gross as hell, but he also doesn't want people to see his pain. And the way he describes it here... I I feel them inside me all of the time, Logan. Wriggling, squirming, their jaws snapping. I kind of like the idea of paralleling Maggot and Wolverine here, not just because of what we mentioned last issue, with Maggot thinking he's a monster and Logan in many ways actually having been one, but that whole thing. We know that Logan has such an intimate relationship with pain and with healing and with vulnerability, and here's a completely different version of that. Wolverine's famous line about how it hurts every time from the first X-Men movie, it's that, but so much more horrific. Yeah. And so there's Maggot's origin— We've been talking about it a lot in the podcast, but actually reading it all in one place, it is a surprisingly effective issue. Now, while all of this is going down, Storm, for her part, goes to the post office because they have not been picking up the school mail. And um, among the mail is a package addressed to her. And when she finally gets home and opens it, it is a little statuette of her adoptive mother that speaks and begs her to come home to fight a great evil, Anansi. Man, Marvel characters will do, like, anything to avoid picking up a goddamn phone. Storm's been on the X-Men for a while. Presumably her adoptive mother knows at this point just how likely a phone call isn't to get through. Oh yeah, that's a good point. There are some people you text because, they, you know, they don't check their email, and some people you email because, you know, they don't check their texts. And some people you send little speaking statues to. Yep. This package, of course, is the one that we've been watching gradually wind its way from Africa to North America over the last few issues. So, uh, yeah, that'll lead into some really big stuff that's happening next. But in the meantime, you've got questions. Vince asks via email, What's the best X-Men animated series to introduce to my seven-year-old daughter? We read the initial run of Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur. She loves the cartoon as well, so she has some familiarity with the Marvel Universe. We've also read some Ms. Marvel as well. I'm thinking X-Men Evolution? Wolverine and the X-Men and the original X-Men series might be a little too grim for her. Thoughts? Hell yeah, Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur, and also Ms. Marvel. Those are great choices. Listeners, if you have kids, uh, especially Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur, great, great choice. Astoundingly good kids comic. I don't think it has an ongoing right now, but a lot of it's already come out. I'm sure a lot more will come out. There's a TV show. But as for the question itself, so yes, completely agreed, Wolverine and the X-Men is totally too grim for a seven-year-old. Yes. But also, it works best for folks who are already familiar with the X-Men anyway. I feel like if that was your first X-Men property, it could potentially be a little confusing. Now, I would argue that the animated series might be okay depending on your seven-year-old. Yeah, the violence in there is is relatively tame in terms of, like, actual consequences. It's kind of like a G.I. Joe thing where everybody always jumps out of the tank before it blows up or parachutes out of the airplane. But, I don't know, there's still some dark stuff. Like, a main character does apparently die in the first arc, and everyone is very sad. So, I guess depending on your daughter's level of emotional armor? I would also say there's a risk with that that it's gonna feel really, really dated and kind of primitive to her in terms of its approach to storytelling and characterization. How far kids' heart cartoons have come since that show came out is hard to overexpress. And how much pacing has changed? Like, stuff is so fast-paced these days by comparison, and I don't think that's necessarily a, a bad thing or a good thing, but it is a different thing. So, yeah, I think X-Men Evolution, while that is also a somewhat old show by this point, which feels weird to say, uh, I think that is probably the best choice, especially because it's the X-Men, for the most part, as students in a school, and so there will be that familiar context for your daughter of what it's like to be in a school of some sort. That one might make it a little weird to check out more X-Men stuff in the future because it's so different, but listen, if anybody's going to be a Marvel fan, you have to get used to there being a million different contradictory versions of everything, so that's probably fine. 
I will say, though, do not sleep on Pride of the X-Men, the late 80s or was it early 90s, but that failed pilot, you know, with the 70s X-Men and like Kitty Pride joins and they fight the Brotherhood. It was only ever one. And Wolverine's Australian. And Wolverine's Australian for some reason. Uh, I watched that over and over so much as a kid, and kids like to watch stuff over and over, so maybe that wouldn't be a bad thing. I actually think that's maybe the best introduction to the concept of the X-Men for a child, albeit perhaps even more dated than the 90s animated series. I'm trying to think of whether Floating Hands Theater would be too esoteric. I, I don't know. I don't know. That might be worth a try as well, although it's certainly not going to substitute for an animated series. It might be a good, good, you know supplementary bit of media. Mm -hmm. Aperitif. Now, the following question does include spoilers, albeit general spoilers, for some stuff that happened very recently in X-Men. So if you want to be spoiler-free and uh, you're not completely, like, up to a couple weeks ago current, uh, you may just want to skip to the end of the episode, or we can just say, our next episode's Excalibur. Now you don't have to skip to even that part. But if you are caught up or don't care about spoilers, James asks via email... I'm having a really hard time getting through the Hellfire Gala this year and grappling with what happened. I understand that conflict needs to happen to continue to make comics, but the way in which a safe space like Krakoa was taken is hard for me to read and enjoy. I know the issue is supposed to feel violent, but that's not a feeling I want to live in as a gay male and part of the LGBT community who has struggled to find safe spaces. I came into comics during the Krakoa era because it created a fantasy I wanted to live in. Does this mean that I am not cut out for Big Two Comics? No. What it means is that you may not be cut out for reading comics day and date of release. Ultimately, with ongoing titles, I, I think you kind of nailed it, that that conflict is going to be an inherent component of any ongoing company-owned comic series that you read after a point, and that that's going to involve violent disruption of status quos if not frequently, then at least pretty regularly. If that's something that you have trouble with, and especially if you want your comics to be kind of a safe space for you, what I would recommend doing is basically looking at, at discrete eras or periods once they're out in collection, rather than as soon as they're released, so that you've got a full story in hand, and so that you've got the stuff to go back to that's what you came for. Which is, I think, another thing that's really important to remember, that something has changed, that this is, you know, this status quo did get violently disrupted, and I should confess I haven't actually read the issues in question yet, because um, I am still horribly behind the current stuff. Um, but but I've, I've had this happen before enough times to, to kind of go back to the idea that this doesn't change the things that meant a lot to you. That the Krakoa era is ending in terms of real time doesn't mean that it doesn't continue to exist in the literary present on the page for as long as you need it to. It doesn't mean that you can't extend it in your imagination. It doesn't mean that you can't go back and reread those issues. And finding comfort in those things when, again, you're, you're imprinting and finding value in something that ultimately isn't a story that you own or have control over can be really valuable. Very much so. Uh, I remember way back we did, in the day, we did an episode of Hawk Talk about our favorite comfort reads. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I mean, I still go back to X-Men season one when I've had a rough week. It's always going to be there. And knowing that, you know, horrible shit will happen to those characters later canonically, it's still a really sweet, lovely story. It still is there. That story itself is never going to change. We are a fully listener-supported podcast, and certain levels of support come with on-air acknowledgement from various fictional characters and concepts. Today, let's tune the dial to ZZ105. You've been listening to seven hours of singing bowls filtered through the sounds of the New York City sewers, only on ZZ105. Next up, ten hours of gentle whooshing noises, brought to you by the Worthington Foundation for Things That Go Whoosh, and by the generous donations of listeners like Quinn and Cody Clausen. Quinn and Cody, you can look forward to getting your very own limited edition ZZ105 bong koozies in the mail as early as next month. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. 
Special thanks to Max Carlton for cold open assistance. New episodes come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. And please take a moment to rate and review us on your favorite podcasting platform. It really helps. Next week we're off, but in two weeks, Legion returns to Menace Excalibur... In pog form! Ghost form. Right. In ghost form. Ghost form.